It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There are lots of other things Jesus did that I didn't record here. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is saying, I recorded this story so that you would know who Jesus is more clearly. So that you would see him as Son of God and see him as Christ and believe in him. That's the purpose of this text. So what's it teaching us about Jesus? Look again at verses 13 through 17. Let's revisit this scandalous passage. 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, there's a lot of contextual stuff we're going to dig up over this week and next week. But two things I want to point out right now. I think that this happened more than one time in Jesus' ministry. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does a similar action there. But a lot of the details are different, and it's situated much later in his ministry. So I'm leaning toward Jesus actually having done this more than once. That's one thing to take note of. Secondly, the temple was a massive complex. And what Jesus did happen in an outer court of the temple. So he didn't run through the entire building. That would have been hundreds of people. This is probably a, a, a localized portion of the temple where Jesus did what he did. But why did Jesus do what he does? And what does it teach us about him? Well, when his disciples remembered this event later on, verse 17 points out a verse came to mind from the Old Testament about zeal. This is your next blank. Jesus was zealous about the temple because he is the son of God. Jesus was zealous about the temple, about this building, this space. Jesus was zealous about it. Why? Because he is the son of God. Why does Jesus have this zeal? Why does Jesus actually sit down with leather strips and fashion a whip of cords? Why does Jesus then use that whip to drive out the sheep and oxen? And for the record, the text implies that he used the whip on animals, not the people. That's one of the questions I've heard. Why did he pour out these coins? Why did he overturn tables? Why did he take the pigeon sellers aside and talk to them? All of his zeal in his text, all of the things he does, he did it because he's the son of God. Again, this wasn't Jesus being very human. Jesus isn't sinning. Jesus isn't losing his mind. He's acting with intentional zeal that is born out of being the son of God. But what does that mean that he's the son of God? It's not saying that there was a time long ago when Jesus didn't exist and he was born somehow out of God or or from God. It doesn't mean that Jesus was just a normal old guy and that when he was baptized, he had this epiphany and was adopted by God as his son. No, that's not what son of God means. What does this title mean? Here's your next blank. Jesus' title, son of God, describes less Jesus' divinity. Son of God is not actually a a title that means Jesus is God. It means something else. So it describes less Jesus' divinity and more the relationship between Jesus and Yahweh God. 
that they are in loving, paternal relationship. So when Jesus is called Son of God, what's describing is not his divinity, though he is divine, though he is God, is describing his relationship to the first person of the Trinity. Look at how Jesus talks in verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make what? My father's house a house of trade. When Jesus says, this temple is my father's house, he's saying, I have a unique relationship with God. God is my father and I am his son. I relate to him that way. He loves me like a father does and I relate to him as a son does. That's what he's saying. Yes, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, but that's not the point. There is a closeness and an intimacy between God and Jesus, and his hearers couldn't understand that. In the Old Testament, they didn't talk about God as Father. We're 21st century Christians, right? And we're so used to all of our prayers starting with Heavenly Father, and we talk about God the Father, all this sort of thing. This was new. No one had ever talked about God in this way before. When Jesus starts saying, this God is my father, everybody there is scratching their head. Who does this guy think that he is? Because they individually didn't have that kind of relationship with God. Maybe Israel was described in the Old Testament as the son of God. But for this individual to say, I'm a son of God, was really weird. So much of what we assume about God would have been crazy good news to the Jews in Jesus' day. To hear Jesus talking about God, the Father, this tender God who wants to be close to us, who wants to forgive us, who wants to to, to know us and be known by us. It's there in the Old Testament. It's just not as explicit as it is in Jesus. So when Jesus says, take these things out of here, do not make my father's house a house of trade, what's he saying? He's saying, I know God more closely, more deeply than any other person in this room. Even more than the priest, he's my father and I'm in submission to him. Therefore, get rid of this stuff. And here's the implication. My dad doesn't want this stuff in his house. It's his place and he doesn't want it here. I know that because I'm his son. Jesus was zealous because he's the son of God. Here's a second aspect to that. It's your next blank. As the son of God, Jesus knows the mind of God and acts accordingly. So anytime that Jesus acts, you can assume that he's exercising the Father's will. God the Father wanted the temple cleared out. And if that's a hard pill to swallow, let's look at the end of our text. So jump to verse 23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew what was in man. Kids, so when it says that Jesus knew what was in man, that means Jesus knew what people were really thinking. And we'll see later in the the gospel, according to John, we'll see where Jesus actually understands what people are thinking when they're right there in his presence. So kids, here's the question. Can you read minds? Let's test it, okay? So I'm going to imagine an animal doing something really, really silly, okay? And I'm going to give two of you a chance to try to read my Joe, you, you, you already know what I'm, okay. 
Well, I'm not going to tell you what animal it is. Like, if you can read my mind, like, you should be able to intuit that. All right, okay, Joe, so go ahead, give it a shout. Let me, hang on, let me make sure I'm imagining it real clearly. So if you can read my mind, you can do it. All right, you ready? Go for it. What, what is chasing its tail? A lion chasing? No, I'm sorry, that's, that's not it. All right, we've covered the croppers. We got another? All right, my son, this is dangerous. What do you, what do you think, son? What, what? I didn't tell him. This isn't a trick. He's not a plant. Okay, son, I'm, I'm imagining. What, what am I imagining? An armadillo rolling up to... That's not correct. It was... It's true, but mine's better. It was a rhino on a unicycle on, on a tightrope. So you couldn't read my mind. And, and, and I would venture to say moms and dads might be able to read their kids' minds a little bit, but not that clearly. Here's the bottom line. We can't read minds. Uh, we, we just can't. But you know who can? God can. 1 Kings chapter 8, King Solomon said this about God. Look in your worship guide. It says, you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. So Solomon says there's only one person that can read minds, and it is God. Well, if that's the case, how can Jesus read people's minds at the end of John 2 and later on in the Gospel of John? Because Jesus is God. But there's more to it even than that. It's actually even more complex. Later in the Gospel of John, he says this. Look in your worship guide from John chapter 10. Jesus said, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And I am in the Father. There is a connection so deep between God the Father and God the Son that when one of them acts, that's as good as the other being present and acting with them. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. That's why when we come to this table, we can say, Jesus is here. Even though Jesus is in heaven with the Father, why can we say that? Because the Holy Spirit is present. And when we interact with any person of the Trinity, we are interacting with the whole tri-unity. When the Spirit is present, so also is the Son and the Father. Three distinct persons of one God, always existent and always working in tandem. So when Jesus thinks, he thinks like God the Father because Jesus is God. And when Jesus acts, he's acting like the Father because he and the Father are one. So what Jesus does in the temple here reflects the heart, the mind, and the will of God the Father. Jesus not only knows the mind of God, but he always acts in accordance with the Father's mind. So the cleansing of the temple, what Jesus did here, is God's desire. In short, here's your next blank. As the Son of God, Jesus represents his Father's heart and his Father's agenda. Jesus represents his Father's heart and his Father's agenda. In these actions that that so easily we deem as crazy and out of control, we're seeing God the Father in action. We even see his heart. (laughs) How do these actions, the things that Jesus does, how do they reflect the Father's heart in this seemingly destructive event. Did you notice who Jesus talks to in the text? Anybody notice? 
It's pigeon sellers. You ever wondered why? Why did he drive out the, the sellers of the oxen and the sheep, but he talks to the, the pigeon sellers? I'd never even noticed it until this read-through. I'm going to take you down this rabbit hole at high speed. Premise number one. The Old Testament law allowed for people to purchase sacrifices upon arrival in Jerusalem for a feast. It would have been insanely difficult to try to move your oxen and your sheep and your pigeons all the way from home to Jerusalem. So God allowed for people to come to Jerusalem and to buy their sacrifice. That's not what Jesus is frustrated with. He's not upset that people are purchasing. The problem is the location. They're making the temple into a house of trade. The Greek word is emporium. It's, a, it's, a, it's an Israeli bazaar in there. The location is the problem. That's premise number one. Premise number two. Whom, in the Old Testament, maybe you all been reading Leviticus or Deuteronomy this week, who most regularly gave pigeons as sacrifices? It was the poor. The poorest of the poor were the ones who gave pigeons as sacrifices. So who are these pigeon sellers whom Jesus pulls aside? Not only are they the ones who provide for the poor to make their sacrifices to God, but Jesus came from a poor family. Maybe he had had dealings with these people before. So these merchants whom Jesus is speaking to are people who cared for the poor. That's premise number two. Here's my conclusion. I find it telling that in this moment of fierce prophetic activity, I mean, he's legit, he's swinging a whip around in this place. This is pretty wild. In the middle of that, Jesus still shows special attention to the needs of the poor and the disenfranchised. Jesus doesn't explain himself to anybody else. The others just get the warning of violence, but the poor or those providing for them, they get a more merciful warning. They get verbal redirection. And if that smells like anybody to me, it smells like Yahweh. Read the Psalms. Read the prophets. Yahweh's heart is always inclined toward the poor. And in fact, the poor in the Old Testament are most often the ones who are vindicated in Yahweh's powerful moments of judgment. So he brings down the powerful, the rich, the oppressor, so that he might elevate the poor and forgotten. So when Jesus pulls aside the pigeon sellers, I see the heart of the Father. But it's not just the Father's heart that I see, I also see his agenda. What does Jesus tell these pigeon sellers? Look at verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. Jesus says, this isn't how this space should be. This is my father's house, not a house of trade. In short, Jesus says, my father doesn't want his house like this. And I don't either. And when Jesus speaks this way, he's speaking as one who has authority over the house. He's speaking like he's the owner of the house. This is dad coming home and finding the house in disarray. Finding people trashing the place and speaking into it with authority, exercising authority over what's happening here. Jesus speaks with his father's authority. My dad doesn't want it this way. It changes now. Jesus has zeal according to his father's heart and his father's agenda. Why? Because he's the son of God. But it's not, it's really not about the building. And you're going to hear this in a minute. We have the groundbreaking. I'm not terribly excited about buildings either. There's something else I'm much more excited about. Here's your next blank. Jesus was zealous about worship and about the relationship between God and his people. 
The building was a means to an end. And what was the end? What was the goal? Worship and a restored relationship between God and his people. So why did people come to the temple for the Passover or for any other thing? It wasn't like a cool place to hang out. You didn't go to the temple for a cup of coffee and play board games. It wasn't a a community center. It wasn't an academy. No, the temple was the place you came to receive forgiveness of sins. You came here to make blood sacrifices so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could know God and be known by him, so that you could worship him and find your purpose. It was a place of restoration, a place of relationship between God and people. That's what Jesus cared about. He didn't care about brick and mortar and stone. He cared about God's glory, and he cared about people. He wanted people to be restored to God so that they could worship him. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) That's what the cross was about. When did he do this? Passover week. The week when the Jews looked back to their time in Egypt. When a lamb was killed so that they wouldn't die under God's wrath. Here in that week, when these lambs are being slain, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is zealous that people would know God. That people would be forgiven by God. That people would worship God. And don't forget, just a few years later, in yet another Passover week, this same man will die on a cross to accomplish that same work of forgiveness and restoration forever. So I hope you can see that what Jesus is doing here is by no means haphazard, manic, or unplanned. Everything that Jesus does in this text is in agreement with his father's mind, his father's heart, his father's agenda. His zeal is born out of his relationship with God, and it relates to his mission, namely the cross. Okay. But what do we do with that? Here's a fascinating thing to ponder. Jesus' disciples, who probably were here when it happened, they had no idea what he was doing. And they didn't know why he was doing it. In fact, they didn't put together the pieces on this event for several years. It wasn't until after he'd been raised from the dead that suddenly they looked back and said, Oh, (laughs) I get it now. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So they see Jesus' zeal and they're like, Well, there's that verse in the Old Testament. Maybe it has something to do with that. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore, listen, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It wasn't until after his resurrection, after that later Passover week, it wasn't until then the disciples could look back and say, oh, wait a second, now this makes sense. So if this story of Jesus cleansing the temple has confused you for your whole life, you're in great company (laughs) with the 12 disciples. They didn't get it either. But what are you to do with this story now that hopefully you understand it a little bit better? Well, Easter Sunday is five weeks away. We're officially in the season of Lent. And you have the freedom to celebrate that however you want. If you feel called to fast, 
fast. If you feel called to spend more time in prayer and contemplation, then do so. If you feel called to do nothing special, that's okay too. But I want to invite you to a daily Lenten practice uh, for this year. And uh, I hope it's this way. You should be able to cut off the last page here. You can. You can just tear this last page off. And uh, it's got your Lenten practice right here. So you can tape it on your bathroom mirror. You can put it on your steering wheel. It'll probably fill on your steering wheel. Wherever you want to put it. And it's just going to take you a couple of minutes each day, uh, a little practice for this Lent. So here's the first blank on there. First, remember how much Jesus cared that we would know his Father's love. Remember how much Jesus cared that we would know his Father's love. He cared enough to act like a crazy person in the temple. He cared enough to be completely misunderstood by the disciples and by every consecutive generation of Christians since then. But truly, he cared enough to die for you in your place. We've all sinned, every one of us, youngest to oldest, religious or not. And because of that, we can't be in relationship with the holy God. He cared about that. He cared about that enough to come to this earth and to die on a cross for you so that you could know God and find your purpose in God's big story. He cared enough to die for us so that if we trust him, we can be assured that we're forgiven and that God loves us. He cares for you. That's a great thing to remember during Lent, but really all year round. Here's a second uh, thing to reflect on each day during this Lenten season. Your next point. Remember that Jesus did not come as our example, but as our redeeming Lord to serve and follow. Jesus didn't come as our example, but as our redeeming Lord to serve and follow. The story of Jesus is not a story about a really good guy who loved people a whole lot, so we should be like him. No. Jesus is the king of you and the whole world. The king died to redeem us and then was raised from the dead to rule over us and to rule over the world, to bring order and peace and justice and righteousness to the whole planet. So love him, trust him, and serve him. He's not a moral exemplar we're supposed to be like. He's a Lord that we're supposed to love and follow. Jesus Lord. So contemplate that uh, this Lenten season. He didn't just come as an example. He was not a moral exemplar. He came uh, to be our Lord that we serve and follow. And here's last, your final blank. In light of Christ's love and his lordship, repent. In light of Christ's love and lordship, repent. The main reason that I... Why, hey, why don't we do Lent? Because I'm really not into it. Like, that's really the bottom line. The session's not really into it either. But if the pastor's like super into Lent and Presbyterian churches, they tend to do Lent stuff. If the pastor's not really into it, then they don't usually do stuff. Why don't I make a big deal about Lent? Because I agree with Martin Luther. Luther said that the whole Christian life is to be repentance. Not one day of the week or not one season out of the year. Repentance is the mainstay of the Christian, a daily, even constant activity. And what is repentance? It's remembering the love of God. Remembering how much he cares for us and then fleeing to him from every other love, from every other satisfaction, sin and otherwise. Repentance is not feeling really, 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 really bad for what you've done and then making yourself do better. 
That's barely like even a Christian idea. Now, the book of Romans says that it is God's kindness that leads us to, to repentance. It's a God who loved us enough to die for us and then to invite us into relationship, to shape us and to make us into people who transform the world. That compels us to know God and to pursue him rather than to live lives of faithlessness and sin. It's turning from our sin to the one who loved us enough to die for us. So as we are taken this Lenten season and really year long by these ideas that he loves us and that he is the Lord, if we're taking those two things seriously, repentance will follow. That'll be the natural response of our hearts. So I hope that these three daily practices, which only take a few moments each day, I hope that this will be an encouragement to you. And let me encourage you to come back next Sunday. We're actually not even close to done with this text. There's a lot more that we need to dig into. So come back next week as we dig into the second week of Jesus' ministry where we're going to see the heart and agenda of God the Father on display in God the Son. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have recorded um, this event in Jesus' life in our Bible. Uh, John tells us there's a lot of other stuff that could have been included that wasn't. And you included this one so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. This week we've seen a lot about Jesus, your relationship to the Father. Um, Help us to know your Father's love the same way that you do, Jesus. May we have the same closeness with him that you have with him, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you're a God who comes near to us, who wants to know and be known by us. Help us to live that out this week as we're reflecting on your love, lordship, and as we're repenting, we pray, Lord, that we would have a a real experience of intimacy with you and indeed with the whole triune God. pray this in the name of Jesus.